Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we are going to talk about niching down. Rochelle, why would anyone want to niche down? What even is that? Well, I think niching down is focusing on uh, the people, the problems, the industry, the specialties, the things that really absorb you and drive you to operate in your genius zone. You know, that kind of perfect sweet spot for you and your marketplace. I, I love that term genius zone, like where you're never thought of it like that, kind of like where you're you're firing on all cylinders and doing your best work because you click with your clients and they need exactly what you do. Like, is that kind of what you mean by that? Exactly. I mean, just feel it for a second. Genius zone. It's, it's where you're working from your personal genius. Mm, nice. So yeah, niching down for me is a, is a hot topic. It's something that I work with a lot of software developers on improving because they tend to software developers and myself included back in the day, tend to focus on their tools because they're not really in touch with the their, the outcomes that they deliver to their clients in a business sense. They're usually like, oh, I'm really good at, I don't know, Node or, you know, Drupal or MySQL mm. or WordPress. And they don't think about, well, what does any of this do for my client? The client clients never come to me and say, hey, I need 2,000 lines of JavaScript by next Friday. Like no one needs that. They need the thing that the JavaScript is going to produce for their business. That's why they give you money. They're giving your business money for you to give their business money, you know, ROI. But this gets pretty sticky with developers because they'll hear me say, okay, I, I call it pigeonholing yourself. And they tend to want to say, okay, I'm going to specialize. And they sort of double down on their favorite tool or they want to do that. They say, oh, I'm going to become like, I don't know, uh, an expert at some WordPress plugin, like Gravity Forms. And that's a little bit problematic. And we were actually talking about WordPress in the pre-show, which I, I think is interesting. So can you actually give people, if there are any developers listening, your perspective on, on looking for a WordPress developer? Because you have a WordPress site, right? I do. And most of my clients use WordPress. So, well, what we were talking about in the pre-show is that, you know, I periodically look for uh, developers. And of course, I want a WordPress developer because 99.5% of the time, my clients' sites are in WordPress as is mine. And, but WordPress, I mean, I don't search on WordPress. It's, there's so many people that do WordPress. It's just sort of a given that I don't even think of that as a niche, as, as a buyer, I don't think of that as a niche. So I'm looking for, uh, do they have experience with consultants? Do they have experience with firms of the size and type that I'm dealing with? Do they have experience with the outcome I want from that site? Because the client might have you know, five different reasons why they're doing the site. And also another thing is that is how the team is assembled. Because a lot of times I'm looking for a developer. I'm not looking for someone who can also design, art design the site. I'm looking for somebody who can program it and who understands something. I sometimes look for somebody who really understands um, the digital marketing piece of it and knows how to deal with um, some of the different um, email clients and how those interface with the site. So it's, I feel like WordPress, if somebody just specialized in WordPress, I'm like, okay, so, so what? Mm -hmm. Tell me more. Right. 
I, I actually had this problem in my mobile consulting business because when I first started specializing on that, what I would call a horizontal specialization, where I, I sort of picked a technology and I made a name for myself as being the go-to guy for mobile websites, which at the time in 2010 was a great position because there weren't that many people doing it. There, the iPhone was still relatively new. Businesses weren't really, they were just beginning to think about mobile. It was sort of at the, the height of the Gartner curve. And it was, it was on a lot of people. It was on the radar of a lot of early adopters. And I got a ton of business out of it because I was really, a, it was a very short list of people who had any kind of, never mind expertise. I mean, it was brand new. Nobody was an expert, but nobody was known for it. It was like me and three other people. So it was, it was great. But then what happened was, you know, 10 years later, mobile is basically the primary computing platform on planet earth and everybody does it, you know, Deloitte, IBM, everybody has giant consulting teams that focus on mobile. So it was, I was a big fish in a small pond in 2010. Then the pond grew and grew and grew and grew. And now it covers the whole world. And and just saying, oh, I'm a mobile expert is utterly meaningless now. It's, and it reminds me of your WordPress example where saying, oh, we're WordPress experts. That's super vague. You know, it, so it becomes, uh, you kind of need to think about it in terms of, I think you need to think about it in terms of your ideal buyer and what problem they're hiring you to solve and then specialize in solving that problem. Maybe you use WordPress to do it. Maybe you use media queries. Maybe you use Node.js. But talking about that stuff is, is like, a, I don't know, it's like a, a handyman talking about how good he is with DeWalt drills. No one cares. Like no, no one who's going to hire him cares about that. They just want to know if he can fix the leak in their garage roof. That's for me, that's the perfect example. I just want to know, you know how to use those things. I don't want to know how they work. I don't care. It's interesting that you, you did list a couple of things that were pretty specific, though. You, you, you know you use WordPress but that's not specific enough. You, you know, certain, I think you said email integrations mm -hmm. in my world, what we call that is uh, platform specialization. When I say we, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I call that a platform specialization because there are certain platforms that buyers, you in this case, or perhaps you on behalf of your clients, you are aware of certain platforms that you're using. So something like Shopify is a classic one or FileMaker is a classic one. Usually the decision maker and the buyer is aware of those, that they're using those platforms in-house because they had something to do with selecting or approving that purchase. So it's not impossible to do, but when the pond becomes so huge that it's an ocean, then you have to, you know, you have to go deeper in my, my opinion. Oh, yeah. And, you know, again, going back to my example, I want to use somebody who understands sort of where my client's coming from, what they want the site to do, which means I, I want somebody who's used to selling services versus products. Um, a lot of times the e-commerce piece isn't that critical, but the imagery really is. And the integration with the email client is because we're building email lists. And so it's like that kind of stuff. And, and I can, if I talk to somebody voice to voice, I can ask them questions and figure out if they really know what they're talking about. But I don't even get to that point if their website or their social media doesn't tell me that they know something, you know, that they're speaking my language before I get that far. Right. So to just to clarify that, when you say that they know something, 
I think you're referring to about your business and the out or your, or your client's businesses and the outcomes that you guys are trying to accomplish, yes. not whether or not it's like a given that they know how to do WordPress and that stuff. It, well, it should be right. right? <laughs> it should be. Yeah. It's whether they understand um, the issues around my client's business and, you know, I would add in this case, whether they understand how I want to work, because when I work on these projects, I typically assemble a team. So there's a programmer, there's a designer, uh, I'm typically the strategist, and we'll have uh, a project manager. Now, one of us might be the project manager, the client might be, but it's I have multiple people. So I'm also selecting to make sure that they're going to fit with the team. So for somebody who describes their outcomes, that they were part of a team, you know, that catches my attention. I want somebody who's going to be able to, even though they're independent and they're going to be working on the technology piece of it, I want to know that they can, they can work with the rest of us. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got, a, you've got a programmer shaped hole that needs to be filled and <laughs> you want somebody who's going to fit, fit that slot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I want to come back to something you said, Jonathan, this example about what you did in, in 2010. Um, because one of the challenges, you know, people will say about about niching is, oh, my God, how am I ever going to get enough work? You know, mm -hmm. if I get more and more narrow, where's that going to come from? And so I always like to think of it in terms of signposts, you know, so how do you know if there's a market demand for you, for you and, and, and your niche? And, and you you picked up on one in your scenario where where you're, you're doing research and and it points to some kind of a significant technological, demographic, or in your case, strategic, right? Strategic demand in your market now or in the near term. So you're kind of looking for that, that wave that you can ride. So that's one, right? One opportunity to, to niche where you know you, there'll be a market demand. And then, you know, another one, which is maybe the easiest one for, for software developers is where your target market understands your service and they are just accustomed to buying it in some way, shape or form, right? So, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe you're writing software to, to handle digital marketing. CMOs would know to buy that. So you're, you're, you're putting yourself into an existing niche, maybe describing yours somewhat differently, but you're in a, a given niche that people recognize and will pay for. And when you say people, you mean buyers. Buyers, buyers. But then the other one really struck me as the other the other end of this is that when there are lots of other people in the space, I mean, some of us would say, oh, no, we don't want to go in there when there's a lot of people. But the sometimes depends on what point of the market cycle you're in. The fact that there are other people in that, you know, that level of niche tells you that there is a market demand for that services. I mean, it's not foolproof. But it does tell you that there's an established market of some sort for your niche. Yes. I get nervous when a student picks one that we can find no competitors for. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. I, I, to loop back to uh, something you said about the, um, the cycle of the, of the wave. That's what you said, the wave. There's a... That that's exactly what I did in 2010, but completely by accident, just total luck. I happened to become interested in this thing that was about to crest, and you can you can do that right now. It's right now it's blockchain and AR, VR, that stuff, AI, machine learning. Those are all these things that are just about at the the top of the roller coaster 
of the Gartner curve and people are talking about them like crazy and buyers are wondering if they need to be, you know, the cutting edge buyers are wondering if they need to be experimenting with these things. And it's a very fun place to be. And it feels, it can feel very easy. Uh, the drag is when, you know, three to five years later, it's in the trough of disillusionment and you're yesterday's news. So it's a, it's a, for me, for when I'm working with someone who is trying to build a long-term durable business and who isn't, uh, it's very scary to, to even special to, to even plan on riding that wave. And the thing that I would, I try to get people to do, and I think this is the same direction you're pushing is to specialize in the problem. Like we said before, it's, and it's tough to specialize in a problem without picking a specific audience or a type of ideal buyer. It's really hard because yeah, people have similar general problems, but if you want to get really specific and differentiate yourself from all the generalists out there, it's just a lot easier to pick, I don't know, dentists and say, Oh, I, I do uh, practice management software for dentists that have mm -hmm. uh, between five and 10 employees. There, you know, there's something like 150,000 dentists in the U S that fit that demographic. And you could probably only work with a maximum of 10 any given year. And that would be crazy busy. Mm -hmm. So the, the notion of, of in the software world, the idea of specializing in something, riding the wave is, uh, it's very, it's cool for somebody who's, who is aware that it's going to be an up and down type of thing. But the thing that I think is cool is, is, or safer anyway, is to, okay, blockchain, cool tool. How does it apply to my uh, dentists. Does it apply to my dentist? Is there some way that it, it could apply? Is there some problem that they have that it could solve? And then in your marketing, you could focus on solving this problem for dentists, whatever that problem might be, no shows, let's say. And, you know, each no show in a given day costs a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever it is. And okay, dentist, you've got this problem. I'm going to solve that problem for you. Maybe I'll use blockchain. I don't know. Maybe I'll use SMS. It doesn't really matter. The dentist doesn't care. So focusing in on that problem is the, the business problem is I just can't think of a better way to go. It's the easiest thing to do because you, it's the thing that you need to change the least about your, your internal skills and toolbox. You don't really have to change anything. You just change your marketing and say, Hey, I'm going to start marketing to this specific set instead of marketing to the group that most people market to, which is everyone, which doesn't really work. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, part of that challenge is that it's maybe translation is the word I'm thinking, because what you're saying is you're not really changing anything, you're changing how you describe it. But what happens is, I think when you start changing how you describe something, you start changing how you interact with your clients. So you're having a discussion about the problem versus having a discussion about the solution. Absolutely. Because sometimes, you know, the client has to know there's a problem first, right? And you, you as the consultant have to be very clear about what that problem is, because a big part of our job is defining the problem. And then we can, once we really, really understand the problem, then we can figure out the solution. And then when you're focused on outcomes, all of a sudden you find that you have a different conversation with your client when, as you're working on solution towards the outcome. You're not talking about, well, gee, is it blockchain? You're talking about what it looks like to that dentist in their day-to-day -day life and management of the business. So it, I think it changes the conversation, which is powerful. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't, this isn't really a pricing podcast, but the, the, the best part of it is that if you stop talking about the scope and features and tools that you're going to use and time it's going to take you, you can stop billing by the hour and you can start pricing the outcome and say, oh, dentist, you, let me, you say you're losing $1,000 for each uh, no-show and you're getting three a day. Okay, so it's $3,000 a day times five days a week times 50 weeks a year that you're open. All right, so you're basically looking at a, you know, whatever that maps out to, a million-dollar problem. I, I'm sure I can move the needle on that for a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars and it would only take me two weeks. Would you be interested in that? Who's not, who's not going to say yes to that? I know sold. Yeah. Wait a second. Are you going to use blockchain or are you going to use node? You know, the dentist isn't going to ask you that they do not care. I mean, they might not trust you. That's a different issue. They, your, your claim needs to be credible and they need to have some kind of trust. And we could talk about that maybe in another time, but the, but that is, that's an issue, but you're not going to build trust with them by impressing them with your, you know, software certifications. No, no. And the same applies, you know, to really any consulting niche. It's people want people, clients, buyers want to know that you know what you need to know. And they can't always tell whether you do or not. They make a judgment based on how you speak to them. So if I speak to somebody who's really technical and is throwing jargon at me, I don't necessarily assume that they are as smart as that jargon might indicate, because I think, gee, if they're really smart, they could translate that for me so that I don't have (laughs) to learn the jargon because I don't want to know the jargon. (laughs) That's why I'm hiring you, guy. Exactly. Exactly. There's a a quote attributed to Einstein, although I've been told he didn't really say this, but I love it anyway, which is, uh, if you don't, if you can't explain it, simply you don't understand it well enough and to me that is the mark of someone who's really good is that they can explain to a six-year-old what it is that they do yeah and that's and that's where trust comes from too i just i love to listen to someone who can explain it to me so i can understand it it makes me feel smarter right Mm -hmm. yeah and so how does it work i'm i'm really sort of biased on the software industry is, can you share, I don't know, an example or just like a concept of how that would work for someone who, you know, someone who's niching down that's not a software developer? Well, I have to say one of my favorite stories, and I'm, I'm just going to um, disguise his identity. We'll call him Frank. Okay. So when I first met Frank, um, he was a consultant and he just published his second book. And, you know, he had some respectable book sales, but he wanted to grow his speaking business. And at that point, he was doing these, you know, what I would call one-off speeches for $500 here, $500 there. And um, and, he, and sometimes he would travel to do those. So not only was he only getting 500 bucks, but it would take, you know, two or three days, including travel and, and visiting the city. So uh, so we, we agreed to a plan. Okay, so... Uh, the first thing, you know, we said, well, okay, you've got to promise me no more $500 speeches because you're wasting your time on that. And so yeah, that was easy. And then second, really to, to the point on, on niching is we boiled down his messaging. That's why niching down is the way we keep talking about it. We just kept boiling away what didn't matter until we hit kind of the right niche and the right topic. And for him, it was that millennials were making over media, technology, and entertainment companies. And that's still a little bit broad for most niches, but for what he wanted and his experience and his his um, 
potential speaking clients. We thought that made sense. So it's really focusing on millennials. And this was a few years ago when everybody was trying to figure out what are millennials going to do next. And then what we did was we just doubled down on that message. And so uh, he wrote a lot. And so we'd pitch, you know, three or four articles a month to some pretty big media outlets. And instead of building his own email list, which that's a whole nother topic, don't recommend that for most people. But for him, he had kind of the gravitas to be able to to write those articles and get them published in some large publications. And so what happened is people started coming to him. It started with media, asking him questions, and then the speaking buyers, the clients started to come in. So it took a total of 18 months which I know these days sounds like a long time, but I think it was pretty fast, where uh, we went from $500 to $15,000 for a speech. Mm -hmm. So we just did it again. We focused on the niche, millennials making over media technology and entertainment companies. We focused on those markets and we just gradually raised his fees. You know, no more $500 fees. So we started at $2,500. And we went to 5,000, 7,500, 10. I mean, you know, we did it. But but over the course of 18 months, we just kept raising the fee until somebody said, no, right. <laughs> I'm not willing to pay that. And so, and, and then when you look at that, and again, this is different for everybody because everybody has a different business model about how they make their fees. But um, so he was pretty regularly in that ten to $15,000 range. And so he had revenue from his books, which was the smallest part of his revenue. I mean, he wasn't making much from the books. He had his speaking, which wound up being the biggest piece, and he had consulting, which was kind of that middle piece. So he applied that niching strategy to his pricing, and I know we'll talk about that another time with the pricing, but it's it's really critical to see what role that niching played for him because until he got specific, he was just flailing around 500 bucks for, for a person with his knowledge to get on a plane and fly for four hours to a speech. And I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. He, was, he was giving himself away. Right. So yeah, I don't know how tactical you can get while keeping Frank's identity secret, but I, can I ask a couple follow-up questions? Sure. If I can't answer, okay. I'll tell so, you. Okay. Fair enough. How big, you said he submitted a few articles per month to big publications. Like how big are we talking about here? Like Forbes, Harvard Business Review? Um, not Harvard Business Review, but um, we had uh, New York Times, a Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, what's the one? USA Today, uh, US News and World Report, plenty of major metro newspapers, East Coast, West Coast, that that kind of stuff. And, and uh, The Atlantic, um, mm, we got nice. a couple of pieces there. And so would these be like he'd kind of write the article and then shop it around or would he pitch an idea and then both they would say yeah great idea yeah it, it depended on uh the publication and there were a couple of publications that came to us and said um gee we see that you're expert in millennials you know we're looking for something on this are you willing to write it and, and sometimes they paid him to do that although that wasn't we didn't look at it as a revenue opportunity because you know if, if you're lucky you'll get a few hundred bucks for a bylined article hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't care at all about the money. Exactly. Right. So I've I've actually done some of this in the past, uh, especially when mobile was brand new. A lot of outlets were looking for, you know, they were going to get clicks. They knew they would get clicks if they had an article about mobile and like this new thing. And it was smartwatches for a while too. Uh, And I would just sort of 
it's kind of embarrassing to talk about, but I'll t- do it anyway. Uh, there's a service called Help a Reporter Out, and uh, there was another one, PR Leads, that actually did work for me. I, mm-hmm. I, I would get, it wasn't full articles, but I would connect with reporters. They'd interview me over the phone, and then you'd sort of quote me in the article. Mm-hmm. And the the drag, the bummer is that when that happened, the best that they could really you know, you know, you know how it works. Like you see the, the quote, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, you know, Jonathan Stark, blah, blah, blah mm-hmm. says, and that the blah, blah, blah part was super soggy. And I, I guarantee you that other, other than me being able to say, oh, it was in the Wall Street Journal or whatever, or quoted in the Wall Street Journal, it was like no benefit from it because there was no positioning. There was no, I wasn't niched down on anything. It was just like mobile consultant instead of, you know, these days, it would be much more specific, like uh, Jonathan Stark, author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, which like is like a really powerful mental picture. Like Hourly Billing is, he wrote an entire book called that. That's that's crazy. Like what I have to find out what that is, you know, for the right, for my kind of person is going to be totally intrigued by that. So I, I guess what I'm saying is sort of a cautionary tale, which is not having a real focus value proposition or what do you, what do you call it? We have slightly different terminology. It's kind of like big idea, but it's, it's, well, it's maybe a positioning statement. It's it, it, yeah. Because to me, they're always together. There's the big idea and some people never say their big idea out loud. Um, it's more of a personal thing, but it's, it's represented in, if you use the tagline or sometimes the business name, you know, it's how all those things come together. You know, your name, how you use your title, business name, big idea tagline. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guarantee you, I would have been better off if I had something really specific after my name in those articles, rather than just mobile consult, like, it's like, ugh. It doesn't really intriguing or anything. But I want to make a a point, though, because what you did was really smart. Because if you think about writing articles, I mean, it's great to have a bylined article, but that's also a lot of work. You have to write the article. You have to get it edited. You go back and forth. And, you know, it takes time. And to do an interview, I, I mean, the most intensive press interview you're likely to ever have would be an hour. And probably significantly less, like 10 or 15 minutes, let's, you know, get this and and go on to the next thing. Reporters are busy. So it's a great way to get your name out for a 15-minute investment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you, I mean, is that something, is that the sort of thing that that you've had success with with clients or is that not really a tactic you use? Oh, it's absolutely a tactic. I mean, again, it it, it goes back and forth, but with this particular, our, our friend Frank, um, he was he was really good with media. He 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 got it. And so but he also really liked to write articles. And so they generate or they uh, feed each other. So if people are when a reporter is going out to do a story, they Google to see who's writing about what. And so if you Google um, this person's name, Frank's name would come up over and over again on page one. And page one isn't always easy if you're using a well-known keyword, but his name would always come up. And if you get on Amazon, do you see who wrote books on this? His name will come up on that first page. So it's all of those things feed each other. And then once the reporters find you, guess what? Your, your name is in those articles. So when the next reporter goes looking, there you are. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a, I don't know if you've read this book, but it describes a really specific way to 
make that kind of viral loop happen called Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. Oh, I have no, I haven't and, read that one. Oh, it's scary. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's not black hat, but it's definitely gaming the system by reverse engineering what well-known author or writers at big publications what they read. So so you you sort of trace back the history of an article because something that shows up in the New York Times almost well maybe not the Times but a lot of big outlets the art the idea for the article probably came from some other media yes. outlet yes so if you can kind of follow down the chain till you get to a blogger at the very bottom who is easy to influence you say hey blogger you get this big audience you're trying to put out ten articles a day how about I give you this article on whatever. And it turns out that that blogger is read by a bigger blogger and references the article and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, the bigger fish eats the smaller fish all the way up the chain. And that next thing you know, you're getting quoted in the New York Times without ever talking to anyone. Anyway, the book goes into it goes into how this guy would do this over and over for some really well-known brands. And it got to the point where he started to freak himself out because he was seeing his exact words come out of people's mouths on TV, you know, not and, and in some cases, not not even credited. So it is it was pretty intense. It's an intense book. Definitely recommend reading recommended reading. Well, I think there's a way you can, you know, do this all all white hat and um and above board. And especially when you're dealing with um experts and thought leaders, you know, it's just a matter of taking the things that most people in those categories do automatically which is writing and thinking and analyzing and just putting it into some focused output. I, I think it was maybe our last episode where you talked about creating a body of work. And that's kind of what we're mm -hmm. talking about is each of those little things helps create a body of work. And if at the same time you're doing that, you can get a bigger marketplace interested in, in your articles or your words, your thoughts on, on um, your area of expertise, it's all, it's all to the good. It builds your brand mm -hmm. and ultimately your business. Excellent. Is there anything else we want to cover? It seems like uh, that might be a good place to leave it for the day. Yeah, I think because well, otherwise we could talk about niching all day. <laughs> I know. It's, it's so, yeah, I'm ready to go down the rabbit hole of fear of niching and like poverty mentality and, you know, uh, fear of missing out and all that stuff. But it, it, I guess we can just sort of end with saying that we both have had the experience over and over and over that the smaller your focus becomes, the bigger your market gets. It's weird. Yes. It's like going deep feels like you're, you're, um, you're smallening, <laughs> decreasing the size of your, your audience. But in fact, it's the thing that starts to, to resonate with people. It's, it's, completely counterintuitive. I know it is because I talk to people every single day who are like, well, if I niche down, you know, to a, to a market that's 10% the size of what I'm currently marketing to, I will have 10% the business. And it is the exact opposite. Yeah. It's not straight math. No, <laughs> it just isn't. It's, it's taking that leap of faith, but doing it in a way that's very analytical and thoughtful about getting there. Absolutely. All right, great. Well, that is our show for this week. We hope you join us next week for The Business of Authority. Bye-bye.